This is show number five of the Greenlight Real Estate Podcast, the go-getter's guide to real estate investing and financial freedom. My name is Mike Collins, and alongside me today is my co-host, Naeem Smith. Naeem, what's going on, man? Hey, what's going on, Mike? Uh, this was just a great show, and you know, having Mike Eklund on today was just incredible, and I just loved all the information that he gave us. What about you, man? Yeah, this show was phenomenal. Really learned a lot of stuff. Mike gets into some really high-level real estate stuff. He's been in the business a long time. so But the fundamentals are the same, whether you're starting out as a new investor or you're in 20 years. you know. Um, so definitely listen into what he has to say because no matter what investment you're doing in real estate, the fundamentals are the same. Yeah, man, you hit it spot on, and I just can't wait for our audience just to listen in today. But before we get started, I have something that I want to talk about first with our educational system. So, Mike, just picture this, man. I'm sitting in my first class. It's uh, finance for account accountants, and we get asked the question on the first day. So this is the question. You want to retire in 40 years. How much money do you need, and how do you build up that nest egg? What do you think about that? Yeah, that's uh, honestly, it's pretty sickening thinking about it. You know, I mean, luckily I was able to read the book Rich Dad Poor Dad and really change my perspective, you know, and Mike talks about that later. But, you know, there's no set way that you have to live your life. You know, if you want to do that, by all means. But, you know, I think the reason we started this podcast and the reason getting into real estate is because. We don't want to just accept the status quo, going to nine to five, work until we're sixty-five for someone else, and just accepting that oh, this is how it this is how it goes, and this is how everybody lives life. No, I mean you can make it however you want, and that's the beauty of real estate and real estate investing and the power that it gives you. Yeah, you hit it spot on. And just to add to that, the United States is just as a whole stuck in the matrix and. By reading reading that question, having to discuss it in class, I just sat back and was thinking, like, this is not the life that I want for myself. And that's that's a beautiful thing about being in a country where it's a capitalistic society where we can try to make our own way. Yeah. And that's not to say that, you know, when we achieve financial freedom, we're going to just stop working altogether. You know, Mike talks about that. He was uber successful guy. And he doesn't necessarily have to keep working at all, but he just loves what he does. So I think just the really cool part about financial freedom is being able to do something that you're really passionate about without having to earn money from it. And that's really the real freedom that it gives you. Yeah, 100%. And it's all about us wanting to do what we want with our time and being able to do what we're passionate about and what we care about, be be who we want to be and be around all the people, you know, friends, family, all that. I mean, one of my friends listened to the, our last episode and he was like, well, this is awesome, but what will I do when I'm financially free? He's like, I just still want to work. And I was like, yeah, you absolutely can. So, you know, we're not saying you just quit and retire and go to a beach. I mean, there's so much life out there. And, you know, Mike talks about it. he's able to help so many people because of real estate investing and the power that's given him. So. And that's kind of a sneak peek for other episodes that Mike and I will shoot in the future. We're going to talk more about financial freedom and what that truly means. And just to add on to that, uh, something that education is always super important. And Mike and I both read the book Miracle Morning. I actually just finished it today. And it talks about in the book, this isn't even really a main takeaway, but it says if you set a goal to read 10 pages a day, so there's 365 
days in a year. So take 365 times 10. That's 3,650 pages. And congrats, you can do math. Yeah, congrats, <laughs> I can do math. But you know, if you divide that 3,650 by 200, you know, if there's 200 pages in a book, roughly, that equates to 18 books a year. So just think about how much knowledge and content and learning opportunities that you can really hone in on. You know, you, anybody can find 10 minutes to, uh, you know, read 10 pages a day or 15, 20 minutes. And, you know, as those, you stack those days up more and more, you're going to learn so much more and be so far ahead than where you were when you started. But uh, yeah, so let's get into today's show. And just before we start, we just wanted to make sure you listen to Mike's tips on the concept of mispriced risk, the mindset of an entrepreneur, the two different ways to make money in real estate, his thoughts on job security. And just as a heads up, there are a few swear words for all the parents out there that might be listening with their children. Um, so just wanted to give you a heads up beforehand. And uh, without further ado, let's bring Mike on the show. Our guest today is Mike Eklund, and he's an entrepreneur and real estate investor that's based in Houston, Texas. I uh, got the opportunity to intern with his company this last spring, and he's going to just tell us all about his different experiences. So let's bring him on, MC. Hey, Mike, how are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So uh, let's get into it. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what's your story? Yeah, sure. Um, so born in Louisiana, uh, but raised in Houston. Uh, went to Rice um, for my undergraduate studies and then got a master's in accounting and finance at the University of Texas in Austin. Started out in public accounting, um, CPA by trade. Absolutely hated it. Um, was working with great people at a great firm, but um, just really uh, did not want to be an auditor. I felt like I was a professional nuisance. <laughs> and so um, I, I had the fortune of being contacted by a client, which was uh, Heinz, uh, not the ketchup company, the Houston-based uh, international real estate developer. Huh. And so um, started working there. Um, and eventually became their international controller, and uh, it's a phenomenal place. Got a lot of really bright people there. They work on neat projects all over the world, and I got to see a bunch of those and, and participate in a bunch. And then over time, I've slowly moved to smaller and smaller firms until uh, I ended up having my own sh my own shop, which I, I really enjoy. I have a, uh, one partner, a guy by the name of Chris Colato which I met at the Lionstone Group, and we met in 2005. And Lionstone was founded by three ex-Heinz guys, and um, it was a really neat place. They had several billion dollars under management. They gave us each markets. Um, we were free to invest in just about any product type that did not produce something called UBIT, which is unrelated business income. And the reason that was important is a lot of their investors were um, university endowments. And so it's a big no-no if you do those things. So things that we couldn't do were primarily operating businesses. We couldn't do uh, hotels. Um, mm. We couldn't do parking lots. Um, couldn't do condominium. Couldn't do lot sales. But that still gives you a lot of things. So we did office, land, industrial, multifamily, retail. And um, so it was great great learning grounds and, and what we learned there is as deals got smaller you had less sophisticated players and you had less capital chasing them mm 
And so we felt like we could get outsized returns while taking less risk if we weren't uh, butting heads against the larger institutions. Uh, challenge with that is if you're a large institution, you have $2 billion to put out over a two-year period. You can't do that $5 million at a time. If you're a couple guys, you know, five to $10 million deal moves the needle. And so that's what we're really passionate about. And um, there's never a boring day. So we, we love doing a bunch of interesting and kind of funky stuff at times. Yeah, that's really cool. So can you just kind of expand on what's your current expertise? Um, you said you have a partner, Chris, and could you talk about what your company looks like now too? Yeah, so um, you know, now we have about $100 million, $190 million of equity under management. And um, at our core, what we look for, what we classify as special situations. So we're looking for mispriced risk. It can be in any property type. Um, a lot of times these come in situations where you have the one thing that I mentioned already is relatively small deal size so you're not going up against large institutions uh, the other thing that you can find is sometimes when there's a major market event, a black swan event um, where there's a huge dislocation in capital so in 2009 10, 11 we were buying pools of debt secured by real estate and we would buy those loans at a discount uh, the other thing that we can do, we're, we're heavily data-driven, is we'll identify product types and regions of the country that we'd like to work in. For the last three or four years, we have been long on multifamily investment in the southeastern United States. And so you have to make a choice there. Do you go build a team to go start buying and building apartment complexes? Or do you find a Class A operating partner and work out a great deal structure with them? And, and we do the latter because we can really leverage that. And what we do is we actually participate in their carried interest. And for those of you that haven't had an experience with, with carried interest, the way that you make money as a sponsor in real estate is you may put in 5 or 10% of the money, and then you go raise the other 90 to 95% from somebody else. And typically you are kind of even Steven or Parapasu until everybody gets their money back plus an 8% return. And then after that, you start taking a larger percentage of the profits. It can be 30%, 40%, even though you're only 5 or 10% of the money. And what we've said to these multifamily operators in the southeastern United States is, hey, we're one big check, but we need to participate in that, that 25 to 30% spread that you're getting so we can get our investors a higher return with taking less risk than everybody else. And then... The, the final thing that we do, and I'm guessing this is the reason I was invited tonight, is since 2015, we've been buying um, industrial properties in markets where cannabis has been legalized and leasing to uh, marijuana growers. And that's uh, a lot of data on, on how we got there, but uh, we believe as far as our career goes, it's one of the biggest uh, mispriced risk opportunities that we've seen, and we're going on seven years of doing it and still able to generate uh, what we believe are above market returns for the amount of risk that we take. So I have two questions. When you go out and reach uh, reach out to these groups in the southeastern United States, finding a team to like kind of structure a deal with, how do you negotiate that to make it kind of a win-win for both of the, both of you? So it, it usually 
usually starts with having a relationship with them in a prior life. So the, the group that we had in Atlanta, it's, it's a group that I worked with when I was at Lionstone, and um, mm-hmm. we've had a positive experience with them. Um, they're honest and straight shooters. And so we do a lot of listening. Like, what do you need? What What's keeping you from, from growing? And, and this particular group said, well, we're, we're kind of having a passing of the torch. And we have some younger partners now that are getting participation, but when we pass the hat around the office, they don't, they, they are having trouble cutting the checks to, um, for the co-invest. And so what we started working on was solving their problem. And what we said is we can, we can solve that problem. Um, but in exchange for doing that, we need to, to get something. So it started out, um, you know, with a, with a strong personal relationship, us expressing an interest in their product type and the, the region that they're in, and then trying to understand what they needed and seeing if there was an intersection of what they needed and what we wanted and um, cutting equitable uh, deal terms or maybe uh, favorable to us. Yeah, so that makes sense. Just really trying to make it a win-win scenario. Okay. Do you have a question, Amy? Yeah, so you mentioned misprice risk, but could you just explain what that is? Sure. So um, there's a lot of different ways that, that you can talk about it. And the way that we talk about it is we view the only, and, and not just us, I think a lot of economists will say the same thing, the only supposed mis- or risk-free investment in the world is a U.S. Treasury bond. So the way that we measure risk is if we look at a return that a property or an asset class gives you versus what a zero risk instrument gives you. So let's let's just take um, multifamily right now. Multifamily um, earns you about a four and a half percent unlevered yield, or what's also known as a cap rate. And how you calculate that is the net operating income divided by the purchase price. So simply stated, a 4.5% cap rate, if you bought something for $100, you would make $4.50 a year on that. And so if treasuries are at 2% and the cap rate is at 2.5%, we would say that the market says that there's a 250 basis point risk premium. When we look at our cannabis warehouses, those are yielding in the early days around 17%. So about 15% or 1,500 basis points higher than the treasury. And so what we would say is, is that seven times as risky as multifamily? Some people would say yes. So you move down the risk spectrum and say, okay, if I were to buy a Class C industrial building, which is a crummy industrial building in Portland, that would be at a 6% yield. So that's 400 basis points versus uh, 1,500. Then we'd ask the question again, is that three times as risky having a marijuana warehouse as a Class C industrial in Portland? And we thought absolutely not. You move farther down the risk spectrum and look at what's called a junk bond. And typically a junk bond is a company that the rest of the world thinks we'll go bankrupt in the next six months. Those were trading at about 9%. So, you know, that's a 700 basis point spread to the treasuries. Wow, that's crazy. And then we asked ourselves the same question. Is the marijuana warehouse twice as risky as that? We 
we said we didn't think so. So that's that's kind of how we look at risk and price it. And we talk in terms of whether it's mispriced or not. Um, it, it's how much risk we feel like we're actually taking versus what a treasury yields. I know that was a lot of math in public, so <laughs> sorry if that's confusing, but uh, that's how we think about it. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. So it's kind of like, is the is the profit that you're able to make worth the risk that you perceive, basically? That that's the, that's the initial screen, and then what we say is, what are other investment types that we view um, that are of comparable risk, and what do they pay? Gotcha. Okay. And um, what I would say in this case, comparable risk was actually a Class C industrial building, which was about a 400 basis point. So we felt like we were taking the same risk as something but we were getting paid three times as much for it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's deep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so have you found, cause I know like in multifamily deals, right? You have say a four four and a half percent cap rate that you buy the deal for, but with, you know, improvements to the property and raising the rents, you're able to increase that cap rate yourself. Um, is that the same in, well, first of all, have you done that in multifamily deals that you guys have done? And have you been able to do that in other commercial deals? So there's, there's two ways that I think you can make money in real estate, and, and, and they're both viable. One is you can be a phenomenal asset-level operator. Um, so you can be the guy that buys an apartment complex and that can just operate the living hell out of it. And so there's groups like Graystar, Hanover, Wood Partners, Trammel Crow. Dinner steam, there's tons of them that are amazing at that. The other thing you can do is you can say, I think these five cities in this period of time are going to outperform other asset classes in other cities. And what I've found is if you if you can pick to be good at one of those two things, um, both great careers, um, but a drunk sailor can make money. In a in a good economy, when all when the tide's rising, all boats are rising. I don't care how strong of an operator you are, but if you are in a tough market or a downturn, um, it's uh, you're going to get run over. So um, we have operated before, and we have done the things, cut operating costs, um, made capital improvements to the process or properties, and pushed rents and uh, exited that way. But I think. What, we do better is saying, hey, this part of the country at this time is a better place to be. And typically when that happens, the market does the work for you. Mm. Rents tend to increase, vacancy rates tend to go down, and then cap rates, as the general public catches up with it because they view the market as less risky, cap rates tend to go down. And the lower your cap rate, the higher the value of your asset. So we're better at that. Okay. And that's a lot more hands-off, it sounds like, right? It's just kind of identifying the market. It, it is. Now, on the cannabis properties, we are a little bit more hands-on, and we can talk about that. But um, earlier in our careers, we were more hands-on and enough to where we understood those asset classes. And then what we developed over time is a data-intensive approach and say, you know, look, everybody can beat up their vendors for a cheaper price. What really drives these these properties. What makes what makes Tampa an exciting market? And what makes Houston tough for multifamily right now? 
you know, why are the southeast of the United States? And things that you look at are population and migration. Um, you look at the number of households that are moving there between 20 and 30 years old. Younger people tend to rent more than, than older people. Mm-hmm. Um, what you want to see is what are the economic drivers? Are they recession-proof? D.C. tends to do extremely well because no matter what the economy is doing, government is always hiring people. Um, we tend to stay away from cities like Detroit because the city as a whole is not, not doing extremely well. Job growth is another thing that you look at. And so, you know, for every five jobs a city adds, typically they need one more multifamily. And so if you look at a city that's adding 100,000 jobs a year, they're going to need 20,000 units. And then you can go out and you can map all of the new supply coming online and you can say, holy shit, there's only 5,000 units in the construction pipeline. Yeah. And I've read that book. I know how it ends. Rents pop and um, things go really well. A great time to build multifamily is when there is a black swan event. During COVID, everything shut down. So all of the projects that started during COVID, because there's very little new supply coming online, they're absolutely going to kill it. So it's, um, I always hate it when people quote Warren Buffett because I think it's a lazy thing to do because the guy is brilliant. We've all read his stuff. But the one truism is is being fearful when everybody's greedy and being greedy when everybody's uh, fearful. Again, this isn't an attack on Warren Buffett. It's it's all of us hacks out here that, that steal his quotes and act like we have the same wisdom he does. But um, that's it's absolutely a, a truism in real estate. Is when nobody when nobody wants to put money out is usually the good time, and everybody's super excited. That's um, that's when you're about to get run over. Yeah, so transitioning into your cannabis side of your business, what markets are you primarily focusing on, and then what has what's so intriguing about those markets? So in, in cannabis, we tend to focus on markets that are converting from uh, medical legislation to adult use, and adult use is effectively um, where the, mar- the economy treats it like it's beer. Um, you don't need to get a medical card. You don't need a pre-existing condition. You just show up and say, I want to buy it. The reason that we focus on those markets is that what our data has shown is when a market converts from medical to rec, um, sales increase about two to two and a half X. Our number one target market right now is Arizona. And what makes it appealing to us is that they just in the past year converted from medical to rec. The other thing is it's a limited license state. So it's about 145, 150 licenses. Um, for perspective, Colorado and Oregon are much smaller markets than Arizona, hmm. but uh, they have about 2,500 licenses. So what it's about is finding uh, a place that's going to have an extreme amount of demand and where it's it's relatively hard for, um, for tenants to fail. And so we think... And what we believe and what we've seen from our history is you don't have to be an A player to survive in Arizona. Um, we've had 40 tenants over our time. We've only had two fail. I'd love to tell you that we were smarter than everybody else and we knew the good ones from the bad ones, but we were up and down the bell curve. What we found is the 38 that got opened have survived. We had two that basically put a placeholder in and never built out their space and never moved plants. And they paid three and a half years of rent for vacant buildings. Those are the only two tenants we've, we've had fail. So once they've gotten open, no matter how bad their weed is, how inefficient they are, 
they have survived. Um, near term, Colorado is getting hit really hard on pricing. So I wouldn't be surprised if we did this uh, podcast three months from now that uh, the number is going to go up. But um, today, almost seven years, we've only had two tenants fail. Interesting. So how do you like structure those deals? Like, what do they look like? Are they, you know, is it a triple net lease and kind of what it's like the criteria you look for in these properties? So the criteria, we'll start with the properties, the, the properties, every city and every state is different. So once the law gets passed, it's not like it's the wild west and everybody starts selling the lead immediately. So most states pass a law and say, Hey, the state, we're not going to get in your way anymore. So they let cities opt in and opt out. So the state of Oregon, for example, almost the entire eastern half of the state said no thank you. So if you bought over there, you got there too fast, there was really no move for you to make. Then the state sets regulations out. Like, do you have to be fully integrated? Can you not be fully integrated? Oregon threw out one where you could only have 10,000 square feet of canopy. So that means canopy is basically how much plant coverage you have. So you can only have 10,000 square feet. So um, if you went out and bought a 200,000 square foot building, that didn't do you any good. Then once you get into the cities, the cities put different rules. You've got to be certain zoning. Um, Most of them will say you have to be X number of feet away from neighborhoods, X number of feet away from uh, schools, churches, daycares, things like that. So those are the first screens we run. Where does it fit legislatively? Do we have the zone? Then after that, we need to make sure that we have adequate access to power. So these buildings use almost as much power as a data center. What we find is about every 10,000 square feet of our building, they're using about 1,000 amps of power, which is an ungodly amount of electricity. So those are things we look for. Um, Then once we cut a deal with the tenant, that's changed over time. Initially, we used to say, hey, we're the only show in town. We've got this building. You can take it or not take it, but you're getting zero free rent, and we're not getting any tenant improvement dollars. And typically, in commercial real estate, the landlord provides some money up front for the tenant to build out their space. And what we've said is we're not doing that. So with our tenants, they were in the early days investing about $100 a foot in our building of their own of their own money, and. That's what we looked for is could these guys pay rent for 12 months? Did they have enough money to build out the space? And um, at that point, we knew they would have enough skin in the game where it would be hard for them to fail. I mean, we wanted them to go eight mile on this, you know, M&M eight mile where <laughs> failure is not an option. Um, and so that, that's how we got it. The leases, we do what's called absolute triple net. So the triple net component is standard in, in a lot of commercial real estate topics. What's not standard is the absolute component. We say with the absolute is pretend that we're leasing you a plot of dirt. There happens to be a building here. You can use it or not use it. We don't care. Um, But if the roof caves in, do not call your landlord to fix it. That's on you. So, um, you know, 100% of our rent is straight to our bottom line because we don't. And usually with a triple net lease, you you are responsible for walls, foundations, some cases HVAC, some of those other things. We haven't done that. As the markets evolved, um, there's become more competition in the space, but not a whole lot. Um, we're now putting fifty to hundred dollars a foot into the buildings, and our tenants are putting another hundred and fifty a foot of their own money. So it's wow. right now to build out one of our spaces, 
it's about $230 to $250 a foot. So that's what we're really looking for is a tenant that has enough financial wherewithal mm-hmm. to, to actually be able to survive for a period to get up and ramp and then also get its space built out. Because once the space is built out, if they fail, um, that's where your credit comes from. There's there's 10 people right behind them that can take it over. Hmm. Interesting. So could you define for our audience the difference between like triple net lease versus absolute triple net lease? Yeah, so, so triple net... Uh, what you're really saying is your tenant pays you base rent and then plus they pay you the triple nets and triple nets are insurance, taxes, utilities, common area maintenance, things like that. In a normal triple net lease, the landlord still has to take care of the building. Um, they still have to fix certain things and it's typically foundation walls, roof um, and life safety systems. And the absolute, it basically means the reasons you can call me to fix something are basically absolutely nothing. <laughs> you know, it's, we, we fix nothing. It's um, all repairs and maintenance and all capital expenditures are on the tenant. All right, yeah, this has been super interesting. So something that just jumped to mind is, I mean, you're spending a lot of capital per square foot. So I'm just kind of wondering the whole lending process and how you come up with these, uh, the capital to improve these buildings and get deals done. Yeah. So today it's been really difficult because, um, traditional lenders will not, um, step into the space. So what we've been doing is raising money to buy these um, assets a hundred percent equity. Um, we do not have large institutional investors, so it's friends, family, and high net worth individuals that invest with us. Um, it's gotten easier over time, but going back to 2015, um, you know, in, being in the state of Texas and tell, talking to a bunch of old rich oil executives about, hey, we want to go buy buildings for marijuana, um, you know, they, they looked at us like we were crazy, and they may have been right. So. Um, you know, a lot of it is um, leveraging the trust and track record that we've had in the past um, and continuing to communicate to our investors and continuing to execute on what we tell them we're going to do and communicating with them openly and honestly. Um, you know, not, not every report that we send out is rainbows and unicorns. Sometimes we get kicked in the nuts. And uh, what we found is that most people, um, they appreciate you telling them that not sugarcoating it, and um, you know, it's. I'm. I'm. I know that I can create a much scarier monster than whatever the truth is. So if I invest with somebody, I'd rather them tell me what they think is so bad that I don't want to hear because whatever I imagine is much worse. So um, the the way that we've got money is um, we've consistently underpromised, overdelivered, and we communicate quarterly like gospel. We don't delay people's tax returns. We get their K-1s out early. Um, so a big part of it is, is uh, you know, just taking good care of the people and executing and uh, communicating. Something that just came to mind too is, do you have a backup plan if these operators default on their loans? And I mean, you said you had two that couldn't get started. So can you talk about what you did with those properties? Yeah, so, so typically we try to buy the property and then all we do is, is, is lease up if they don't. But there's one case we had a, we had a building in Mendel, Oregon, 
where we lent on it and we had a first deed of trust. And that is a that's a legal instrument that if the tenant doesn't or not the tenant, the borrower in this case, doesn't pay their bills, that we have the right to place a lien on it and take over the property. Now unfortunately this this happened um, right before COVID and the People's Republic of Oregon just put a um, statewide ban that you couldn't foreclose on people. Completely unconstitutional. Um, for $2 million, I'm not going to go to the Supreme Court. We had to wait it out. Um, but the one thing is, is the guy couldn't sell the building um, until we were paid. And so ultimately, once that law sunsetted or that edict that their governor put out, which was absolutely nuts, uh, we went through an orderly foreclosure process. And then we sold the asset that had enough to repay our loan, all the late fees, all the accelerated interest. And then plus the owner of the building, the borrower, there was enough left over for him to take some as well. But that's our last, our last ditch. Um, we're interested in seeing our people succeed. So before we even talked about foreclosure with him, we, we tried to do a lot of things to see if he could make it. And he was, I think he was retired. He was exhausted with his business. And he's just said, look, I, I want to throw in the towel. Yeah. But so having the 100% equity probably allows you more flexibility to be able to, you know, kind of be more lenient with your tenants. Is that right? Yeah. So it's a good point. So being 100% equity, it has some pros. It's, you know, one, we don't have monthly debt service building up behind us, so we can be patient. Um, you know, there's, there's not, you know, if you lose money on real estate, it almost always starts with, a story of getting foreclosed on by the bank. So when you're 100% equity, there's there's no bank to foreclose on you. As long as you can pay your mm-hmm. um, your property taxes, you you can hold that sucker for a long time. Deal with a lot of bad stuff. The challenge with not having debt is if you buy a building for a hundred dollars and it's ninety dollars of borrowed money and ten of your money. If you buy it for a hundred and sell it for a hundred and ten, you've doubled your money. If it's all equity, I've made a 10% return. So I have to take that building from $100 to $200. So so leverage is powerful. Um, it's it's kind of like the super hot girl that's, you know, a little bit crazy. Um, <laughs> you, know, you, you, you want it around until she acts crazy and then you don't want her around. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely a double-edged sword. So like with having a, these... A crazy hot girl or debt? Oh, <laughs> Probably both. (laughs) But uh, so like with having these 100% equity, you know, properties, do you guys have a strategy like for exiting or is it just kind of we're just going to hold these as long as they're producing and go from there just as, you know, get out of them when the market changes? So it's our, our strategy is called the grumpy old rich guy. And there's the hardest person in the world to negotiate with is the grumpy old rich guy that has this building that's paying him a lot of money every year to sit in his ass. How do you motivate that guy to sell? And so what we do is put ourselves in that position, get us in a position where we are getting quarterly checks that makes it extremely comfortable just to sit there and say no over and over again and basically wait for a crazy number. Um, and, and, and part of that, you know, it's silly, but the other part of it is, is there's not a ton of liquidity in the space yet. So we've sold four of these assets. All four have been sold to our existing tenants. 
there are more and more people moving into the space. So I think there will be a secondary market, uh, just like there is for multifamily office, public storage, all those things. But that market's not mature enough yet. Um, so I, I could probably, you know, our portfolio is stable at about stabilized at about a fifteen percent yield unlevered. And again, that's if we bought it for a hundred dollars, we're getting fifteen dollars a year on it. Somebody would pay probably an eight and a half yield on it. So if you divide the NOI, the fifteen by eight and a half percent, it'll math and public's dangerous, but it's a lot more than a hundred dollars. So we get a nice premium. I think within three to five years, that'll be closer to seven percent. And um, so we're we're plenty comfortable waiting for that to happen because we can collect our checks in the end. Awesome. So knowing that this is kind of a capital intensive uh, market. Can you just talk about like your pitch decks and kind of what goes into that process with investors and just maybe some of the struggles that you've had to deal with investors too? Sure. So as I mentioned early on, what what we do is different and um, it's data intensive. And I, Chris and I used to put together these pitch decks that were, they looked like they were phone books written in Chinese. They were thick, a lot of pages confusing as hell, super complex. Um, and um, those went over like a lead balloon. <laughs> so what we do now is, um, I think it was Mark Twain that said something like, uh, you know, I would have written you a shorter letter, but I ran out of time. Is that we really focus on, give me three to five bullet points of why I should do this deal. And um, we try to eliminate as much of the noise as possible. And, and really get down to brass tacks of why the deal is compelling. And we've shortened our slide decks, and, and we've gone from writing memos. That was another thing we did, is we wrote these, these memos that look like white papers. And we have data analytics on how many people open our books and how long they spend in them. And we found with the memos, um, most of them didn't get open, and the ones that did were usually closed in about 8 to 12 seconds. Um, so now we've moved to kind of a slide deck, which is usually 10 to 12 slides. It's got pretty pictures. It's got graphs. It's got bullet points. You can very quickly figure out whether you're interested in reading more, but we're finding that we get higher engagement on that, and uh, we've gotten better at telling the story. So um, what I would say what we've learned is is less is more, and uh, we're constantly receiving feedback from our investors and um, it doesn't mean we change for every piece of feedback we get, but if we start hearing themes, um, which the early themes are too long, too confusing, and you're using terms that I don't understand. Like talking to an oil and gas guy using a word like cap rate, um, that it, it didn't mean anything to them. So now they're more likely to talk about unlevered yield, or when we're pitching something in person, we'll define what this term is, one. And two, why they should care about that term. Yeah, I mean, when I interned with you, you had quite the extensive and just really well thought out, really, you know, bright and just very intriguing pitch decks. So that was just something that was really incredible to see firsthand. I appreciate that. Yeah, so... Have you did you guys struggle to get investors on board initially, or was it just kind of your experience and past returns kind of spoke for themselves? So I thought that's what it was going to be. 
but there's there's something funny is that you can have all this great institution working or institutional knowledge working for somebody else and it's the perception in the marketplace is the second you walk out the door, they put a vacuum cleaner up to your ear and they suck all your brains and knowledge out. And so you're starting over. So somebody will say, oh, that's great. You worked at J.P. Morgan's or Goldman Sachs or Heinz, but were you the guy? And um, so I thought it was going to be extremely easy to raise cap- capital given our pedigrees um, and the success that we had. But the track record that we had before we were on our own Mm-hmm. It just went poof. And so um, the first two and a half million dollars we raised took us three months. And you know, the last time we raised eight million dollars, it took us three hours. So um, it was it was extremely hard. Um, we had to leverage relationships. Um, frankly, the people who had invested with us in the, at the beginning um, basically said, I don't give a shit what you're doing. I've known you forever. You won't lie, cheat and steal. And I think you're smart. And so I'm going to take a flyer on and that's we had to round up everybody that just put 100% trust in us, and then we built the track record. And, you know, so it's a little easier now uh, to talk about the track record. Remember, part of our misprice risk strategy is talking about things and pursuing things that the general public um, may not feel the same way we do about. So um, I could raise. Um, a lot of money if I had a beautiful partner complex to show somebody, even though it would be a subpar deal. And, and to be clear, I'm not saying multifamily deals are subpar. I'm just saying if I sourced one that was crap, the picture was pretty, that would be much easier than me having a screening mm. marijuana deal <laughs> and showing that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, something that I think is important that you could talk about right now and that I saw with the internship is that cannabis is, uh, investing was actually recession proof. Is that correct? And can you just expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So, um, the data has, has shown that so far now I'm sure there's a different type of, of recession. You know, not everything's linear. Um, but it definitely fared well during COVID. And so one of the things we did is, is we're big on quantifying things. It's, um, we, we push our analysts and our interns um, to speak with numbers rather than adjectives. And so we're saying we outperformed during COVID. We ran a graph that showed our returns versus what's called NACREF. And NACREF is a basket of all commercial types um, across, across the country, but it removes leverage. So it, um, you can play a lot with your returns with financial structure, but this is saying, assuming every real estate deal was bought without debt, how is that performing against whatever it is you're investing? And what we found is we've consistently outperformed NACREF, which that's good. But I think when you really want to find out how good a sponsor is, is see what they do when there's a, there's a huge dislocation in the markets. And that doesn't mean they have to make money. You just want them to lose money at a slower rate or lose less money than, than the rest of the market is. And what we found is our, our asset class actually outperformed not only NACREF during that, but it outperformed what we had done the prior two years. Now, not all financial crises are, are the same. You know, there's some financial crises where the banking system shuts down. This one was where we were told, whatever you do, don't go to work. Be unemployed. The government's going to give you twelve hundred dollars a week, and so it, 
and get your Netflix subscription dialed in. So you don't have to show up at work. You don't have to get drug tested. You get $1,200 a week. If you like to smoke weed, there's a, that's about the best time in the world you can smoke weed. So <laughs> I don't know that we're fully recession-proof, but we're, we're in a good, a good space to deal with, with another COVID if we have to. Would you be able to define the NAC? You said NACREF, is that right? Yeah, and I, I should. It's like National Commercial Real Estate Index. I don't know if it's fund or whatever, but they basically they get all of the large real estate funds. And what they do is at the end of each year, they submit their unlevered yields for all of their properties and the updated appraised value. And so what that is, is it creates an index that shows combination of what they earn that year in yield and asset appreciation or depreciation based on what's happening in the market. So that's just a, it's kind of like in the stock market, you have the S&P 500. Yeah. It's just something that every real estate manager can, can kind of measure themselves against. Yeah. Just uh, measure yourself against the market. Right. And it's quality assets. So, I mean, nobody's calling us to get our NACREF numbers for, for marijuana warehouses, but um, you know, it has all the office buildings downtown, you know, all the fancy apartment complexes. It's, it's, it's really high quality assets. Hmm. Interesting. So I know you were saying to like push, have your analysts push the numbers and everything when you're talking about the sales or getting investors on board. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about the numbers? Cause I was wondering earlier, like, I know you said like they rent it out for, you rent it out for a hundred dollars per square foot, but like, what do some of the returns look like and what does the income look like? Just so our audience has an idea of, you know, the power of this stuff. Yeah. So what, what we target is a, um, roughly a 16 to 18% internal rate of return or IRR. And the best way to describe what an IRR is and why it's important is it's a time basis value of your money. So it's, if you invest invested a hundred dollars and four years from now, you got 200 back. That's about a 20% IRR. So mm -hmm. even though it's four times 20 is only 80, I know we're going to lose people there. IRR is compounding. So if you get a 15% IRR over five years, um, if that's, that's a, that's a two X multiple. So what we're trying to do is keep your money out for about five years and earn 15, it, if you put it in a checking account, it would be like a checking account that earned you 15 to 17%. Now, the IRR takes into account two things. One, your interim yield, which is how much money you're getting per year from us. And the other part is the lift that you get when you sell the asset. So um, what we try to do is stabilize our assets where you're sitting each year getting about 12% on your money. And uh, the rest of the return would come from the asset appreciation. The other thing that we look at um, with real estate is you can't just look at IRR. So the, we look at equity multiple. If you gave us $100 and, and we give you 200 back, that's a 2x equity multiple. So one, you want to say, like, what's my rate of return? That's what the IRR does. The multiple is, is it worth my time? And so to put that in a standard example, if I told you I was going to pay you $1,000 an hour to cut grass, what would you say? 
Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay, what if I told you I only had one yard for you to cut the entire year? Probably. And that's your, you have to live on. I mean, being in college, we probably would still say yes, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's, it, the, the point is, is so, like, what, what, is, what is a tough thing to do as a sponsor and where IRRs can be misleading is you could have a 30% IRR, but you only hold the asset for six months. And so what that means is somebody that invested $100,000 with you got $115,000 back. Nothing to sneeze at, but they don't go to all the trouble to underwrite your deal, go through all your legal documents, get a K-1, do all that rigmarole to to just make $15,000. Again, nothing to sneeze at. So we we want our IRRs to be mid to high teens, um, and we're generally targeting to double somebody's money. So if we could get a really high IRR, but not double somebody's money, that's not not attractive to us. So those are the two metrics that we have. That makes sense. Yeah, so where do you, as you know, the GP, make the majority of your money throughout these deals? So um, the way that we structure them is it's, it's similar to what I talked about earlier with the multifamily deals where we try to co-GP. So we'll typically put in 5% of the money and then we get investors to put in 95% of the money. We earn the same thing they do until they've gotten 100% of their money back plus an 8% annualized compounding return. So if we don't give them any money in the first year, $100 we owe them 108. Um, If at the end of two years, we haven't given them any money back, we owe them, do the math real quick, 116.64 because it's compounding. um, we work for free if we don't deliver an 8% return. After that, we start to take 30% of the profits and we give them 70% of the profits. Then, once they've gotten all their money back, plus a 15% annualized compounding, which is hard to do without leverage in real estate, then we start taking half the profits. So, and then they get half. And the reason we do this structure is... Um, if the deal um, doesn't make a good amount of money, then everybody knows our interests are aligned with theirs. It's, you know, hey, we did all this stuff. We spent five years of our life to give you an 8% return, and we did it for free. Um, when we go 50, if we deliver somebody a 17 or an 18, it's hard for them to start saying, well, how did you get 50% above that? It's because they didn't have to do anything. And we told them we were going to get them a 15 or 16% return, but we actually got them an 18%. So where we can really make money is if we do a deal that's 23 or 25% IRR. Where we make good money is if the deal is a, call it a 17% return. And then the investors get um, the 8% and then they'll get 70% of that above it. So they'll get 14 and then we'll get the rest. So um, it, it's basically being being successful with our investments is how we make most of our money. Awesome. And just to add to that, I would 
like to just kind of look at one of your deals that you've currently are doing and it's called grow sciences and could you just talk a little bit just in basics kind of what the deal entails what what all is at stake with that yeah so um what we've found is that in states um that have the recreational cannabis just like any other product there tend to be brands that emerge and the higher the quality of the brand um, the higher premium they get in the good times, but also uh, their prices tend to maintain downtime. So, you know, think about it in cars. Um, if the economy is in the toilet, you know, the guy in the used car lot is going to have to make a deal on a Ford Focus. The guy at the Ferrari dealership doesn't give a shit. You know, multimillionaires don't have problems <laughs> or don't have money problems even when it's bad, typically. And so, with what we did with Growth Sciences is they are the top three brands uh, in the state of Arizona and they get the highest price per pound. Uh, when they release a product, uh, there's a three-hour wait and they're completely sold out. Um, so that was that was intriguing. The other thing that was interesting about them is that typically when you're approached to invest in cannabis companies, um, it's somebody that has this fancy pitch deck that's like telling you what they're going to do. And um, this was a company that already had $4 million of positive cash flow the day, day that we showed up. And what they needed, uh, they didn't need capital to survive. What they needed was capital to expand. And so we got them at a, a good valuation. We gave them capital. Um, or we bought a portion of their company. And um, that's allowing them to expand their cultivation, uh, buy an additional license to become fully integrated and have a, a retail component. And with that, it's it's similar in our real estate is that we want to build it to a point where it has a current yield that we can wait forever. Um, but it's it's an elite brand. And just like Diageo and Bacardi going around, they go around and they gobble up um, you know the top brands, the Tito's, the Johnny Walkers. The multi-state operators or MSOs, what they're called, they're building a library of brands as well. And so with this, it's build cash flow up continue to build brand recognition and wait until one of those guys comes and comes and buys them out. So we're just going to kind of transition into the next little part. And so what is your short and long-term goals? Um, I mean, from everything that we can hear today, you're, you're extremely successful. You know what you're doing and just why do you keep going? Um, yeah, the main reason I keep going is, I love what I do and, um, you know, it really short and long time, long term goals are do something that, that makes me happy where, uh, you don't feel like you're working when you have a job that, that you love. And, um, I can do this. I, I can make enough money to support my family. Um, but it also feels really good and it's extremely rewarding for me is that almost all of my investors I have a personal relationship with mm. and, once a quarter, I, I get to send out distributions, and it, it feels amazing. Um, so long-term goals, um, you know, I think at some point, I don't know that I ever fully retire, but I think I, I do slow down, and it's, it's building enough wealth where I can maintain a certain lifestyle but not have to work. Um, but I'm going to continue to do it as long as I have fun. So I would say... Um, you know, our goals are to continue to earn returns for our investors, have fun doing it, and then 
uh, hopefully develop some, some young people along the way and uh, you know, build up the next generation of real estate guys and gals. So um, if and when we do retire, that I've got people that I can invest in passively that can do all the heavy lifting. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, so Naeem and I, we started this podcast because, you know, we obviously love real estate investing, but we also love, you know, the idea of financial freedom and being able to kind of choose and focus on doing a job you love. But at the same time, you know, we read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I'm not sure if you've read that book. It's my it's my favorite uh, real estate book. It's been around forever. Yep. And um, I, I think he does a great job of explaining these concepts and, um now, it, it, it's a harder strategy to execute today than when he wrote it, but mm-hmm. the concepts are, are still still true. And you know, I, I love uh, "Richest Man in Babylon" is another. It's not a real estate book, but it talks about the power of compounding money. Yeah. Um, there's um, you know another book I've read because I, I like I like there to be a story as well. So it's called "A Man in Full," and it's about a real estate developer in Atlanta that you know had some you know, really tough. You know, up, ups and downs, and then a recent one I read, um, "Billion Dollar Loser." And so you you can, um, and it's the story of WeWork. Um, hmm. you know, I, I think you can learn um, you can learn technical things, but you can also learn from successes, failures. Uh, you know, I look at the WeWork thing. There are, there are a lot of things that they did extremely well, um, and then there's some other things, extreme hubris mm-hmm. and dishonesty got in the way. I always love reading. It's interesting to see what other people have done and follow them. Yeah, yeah, and just be able to learn from them. So obviously, I know we kind of talked about it earlier, but just, you know, when you first started out on your own, it was difficult to raise money. So like, could you talk about like the mindset that you needed to develop as an entrepreneur? Yeah. <laughs> um, so it, it starts at home. You know, it's being an entrepreneur is not an easy thing, but one thing I had was great familial support. Um, you know, my wife has been incredible. It was, um, I never once heard from her. Why, why did you leave that amazing job that was paying you X? It was, Hey, you finally got to, you finally got to chase your dream. You're so much more pleasant to be around. Um, so, so having a safe place to, to start is, uh, yeah, you know, the, the, the other thing is, is betting on yourself. And yeah. what I will tell you is um, everybody views having a job as having job security. As long as you work for somebody else, you have zero job security. You can have um, your position eliminated. Um, you can have somebody at the top make a boneheaded decision that sends the company in the toilet. Um, you can have a boss that for one reason or another you know, just has it out for you. So... Uh, what I've found is having 100% belief in yourself and um, it's cliche, but you know, failure is you know, not an option. So you go all in and, um, you know, I think, you know, stay at it. And when you're doing something that you love, when you're grinding, it doesn't feel like it. So in the early days I was, you know, I was working a full day and my kids were little and so they'd go to bed around eight and then I would go in my office and I would work probably eight to two in the morning. And that, that's when I would do stuff that, you know, whether it was back office things where I didn't have to um, interact with other people in the office. And then um, the day was for talking to investors, doing things that I had to do in the office. So it was just, just grinding. 
Awesome. That was that was a really in-depth answer, so appreciate it. So just for someone that is Mike and I's age, what are some of the most important skills to learn? Um, I think one, just being curious, continuing to want to learn. There's a saying that smart people learn from their mistakes and then wise people learn from other people's mistakes. I still haven't achieved wisdom, but uh, if you can at least learn from your own mistakes, that's good. But if you can uh, look at some some people with gray hair and say, hey, what, why are you walking with a limp? Um, and if you actually listen to it and, and understand that it could happen to you as opposed to say, well, you know, I'm bulletproof, that isn't going to happen to me. Um, you know, the other thing that I find is in every aspect of your life, if you do what you say you're going to do, whether it's if you tell a dude that you're going to meet him at a bar for happy hour at 6 o'clock, be there at 6 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, have hard conversations when things aren't going well. Do that. I mean, it's, it's so much of your success in this business is going to be having access to capital. And you want people to trust you implicitly. And that's doing what you say you're going to do. And I think delivering bad news quickly, um, good news slowly, don't sugarcoat it. And, uh, you know, I think that will, will take you far. And this is, and I would say, um, treat it like a marathon, um, but feel like you've got to sprint that marathon. (laughs) I'm not saying be complacent and let it, let it come to you. Um, but make decisions that, you look at and say, all right, all right, is this better for me in five years? Because, you know, I made some decisions early on that it's like, oh, I'm going to go do this. It'll pay me $5,000 a year more, which felt significant at the time, but now not really. So I would say pursue experiences and opportunities um, and, and, and don't just focus on what the what the year two paycheck is. Yeah, no, that's, that's great advice. And just kind of, I love that whole living with integrity deal because that'll just kind of help not even just real estate but just all aspects of your life definitely help improve and everybody says they have it um but what you'll find is you'll find when you have integrity when nobody's looking and you have a hard decision to make and so you know i'll give you an example we had uh chris and i had a, a there's one deal in our career that we lost money on and it was in austin in 2009 2010 and um we straight up got our ass kicked on that one. And a couple things we did. Um, one, we forfeited all our fee, but all of our money, and GP money in the first loss position, we gave people, um, gave them the bad news. We were open, honest, the whole way. And when we finished the development, um, Chris and I paid for the warranty out of our pockets. That was another twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars Oh, come on, Chris. It was a tough deal, but people, every single one of those guys has come back to us because of how we treated them during that. And every one of those decisions, the economy was shit all around us. It was not getting getting paid because we didn't get any fee. That hurt. Putting 100%, we lost 100% of our money before they lost one penny. That hurt. Yeah. Continuing to pay for warranty issues after the deal was done and everybody else was out of it, out of our personal checkbook. That hurt. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's people. People saw what we did when it was not comfortable to do it. Yeah, and just just you living with that integrity, saying and doing, you know, putting yourself first and putting taking the bullet first really helped to bring those people yeah. back. Is what I'm hearing. Yeah, absolutely. Over time, people will watch what you do more than they listen to what you say. Yeah, actions definitely speak louder than words. 
Well, uh, Mike, this has been awesome, and we're going to start wrapping things up and jump into our okay. exit interview. So it's just the last couple questions. So first one for you is, do you have a favorite real estate or business book? And I know we just talked about this. So. Yeah. No, I mean, y'all already read my favorite. It's, it's Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I mean, that's just a, it's a classic. I would encourage everybody to read it. Then um, after that, probably, I just finished not too long ago. It was a billion-dollar loser, and then a man in full is also good. Yeah, we're both big, big fans of the Rich Dad Poor Dad. So you made uh, both of us smile right now for the for the audience to know. But the second question is: If you had to restart today, what would you do differently? So um, I think I would have become an entrepreneur earlier in my career. Hmm. I think I needed um, the Heinz job, and I think I needed the Lionstone job to develop and mature. Um, everything I did after that. Um, not that there weren't things that I, I learned, but I think I I should have I should have had the courage to do what I'm doing now earlier in my career, and um, I missed out on a lot of years of having a lot of fun. So uh, I, I would say I would, would bet on myself earlier in my career. Yeah, just get outside the comfort zone earlier, huh? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the next question is: As an investor, what is the most important thing in order to be successful? I would say discipline, and it comes down to not falling in love with the deal, being, being willing to walk it. And you can start with a thesis, but go where the facts take you. And um, there, there are times when, you know, on, on first glance, you'll think that deal's amazing or you'll think it's garbage. And then as you start getting data, listen to the data. The data doesn't have emotion. Yeah. And um, it takes a lot of discipline to do that. And, I'll give you an example. The Growth Sciences deal, um, part of the expansion plan was to buy uh, 51% of Phoenix Relief Center, which is a dispensary that came with a license. Well, they retraded us at the 11th hour, and um, it wasn't exciting to buy that deal, but it changed the economics. So we, we, we walked it. And I'm, I'm not sure, as to this day, I'm not sure if it's the absolute right decision. My emotion really wanted to do it, and the, the data told us to walk it. So... This is something, a new question that we added. Is there anything right now that the listeners can do to add to your, add value to your business? Um, yeah, so all you billionaires out there that are looking for a great place <laughs> to park your money. <laughs> no, what I, what, what I would say is, um, you know, we're always looking for interesting opportunities, uh, clearly looking for capital and introductions to capital. Um, but uh, those are the things that I can think of right off the top of my head. All right. So then uh, our last question is, where is a good place to find you and reach out to you? So the best, best place would be email. And then I'll uh, share my email address. It's mecklund, E-C-K-L-U-N-D, at msidecap.com. That's the letter M-S-I-D-E-C-A-P.com. Awesome. And just for the audience, we're also going to add your uh, Morningside Capital website, too, because it has a is really cool, really professional just for our listeners to be able to look at it and to see different stuff. So, uh, Mike, you know, uh, Mike and I, Mike Collins, that is, <laughs> really appreciate your time. And it was a true pleasure to have you on the show. And, 
you know, we'll, we'll be in touch and you just take care. All right. Well, thanks a lot for your time. I enjoyed uh, chatting with y'all as well. Thank you. Well, Mike, what do you think? That was, uh, that was awesome. I'm so glad you, you interned for him and we were able to bring him on the show today. But I think just like my biggest takeaway was, you know, obviously he does a lot of impressive stuff, real estate investing wise, but really it's just the mindset that he has and just getting outside the comfort zone, betting on yourself. I just love that stuff, you know, and I think we can relate to it in football. It's like, if you don't believe in yourself, you're not going to play well on the field. And it's the same thing in real estate investing and just anything in life having success. Um, so I just love that he talked about that. And then just like the facade of the job security, you know, in the end, it's all your responsibility. So, yeah, I thought that message was very powerful from him. And for myself, I really just thought that the uh, when he was talking about integrity, that was really, really important because at the end of the day, it's people will see over time what you do rather than what you say. And this is a people person business. And if you burn somebody, uh, news will spread like wildfire in real estate and people won't want to do deals, network and stuff like that. So being a, a man or woman of integrity is so important. So, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, look at how impressive it was. He was, he was lost all those people's money, but they still came back and invested with him because he was a man of his word. So super impressive. Yeah. And just how he added that, like always be upfront with people. And if, if like you said, like he was losing no money, so he'd rather be upfront and just let them know because at the end of the day, it could cause more problems if you don't. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So just before we get out of here, uh, if you guys have any questions, comments, or might want to come on the show, you can reach out to us at greenlightrealestate100 at gmail.com. But anyway, I think that wraps up the show for today, and uh, we're just th very thankful for Mike coming on to the show. And my name is Naeem Smith. Alongside me is my co-host, Mike Collins. This is the Greenlight Real Estate Podcast, the go-getter's guide to real estate investing and financial freedom, and we're signing off.